Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective on a lovely Friday evening. We expected to be indoors today because it was pouring in the morning, but uh, it's like the nicest weather we've had in six weeks. Yeah, it's Something like hot that. all the time now. Yeah, it's great. How you doing, Zach? Uh, doing well. I mean, the sound of freedom is number one at the box office, so it's been a very confusing week. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to wrap my head around that. Just wait for Oppenheimer and Barbie to and the, the, yeah to that 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 new um, that social media thing where you people were showing that they have tickets to see both of them on the same day. Cool. Yeah. Um, Escape the heat, I guess. Anyway, right. Movie theaters are AC'd. So Zach, what is Reverend Lovejoy's first name? Timothy. That is correct. I did not know that. Yeah. Which, do you know? Uh, do you know, do you know what the name of the organist is? No, it's just an old woman. I, don't know I think it's I think it's Helen Flesser. <laughs> <laughs> she played uh, she played uh, a Green Day song in the movie. Yes, and she played in a de Vida, except it was in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when Homer and Marge used to make out to that hit? <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, Andrew? Doing all right. So we're talking about rising stars today, which we'll get into in a bit. And nothing predicts a rising star more than. Rookie of the year. There are only 18 Major League Baseball players who won Rookie of the Year and been elected to the Hall of Fame. And only two were catchers. Born three weeks apart, a little less than three weeks apart, in December of 1947. Who are they? Johnny Bench and Carlton Fisk. Ding, 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 ding. I thought that I, I didn't even give you the... Uh, the hint I thought I'd give it away, which is why I pulled it, it's because they played against each other in the World Series, a classic World Series. So seventy-five, yeah. seventy-five. The famous shot of uh, of uh, Fisk caught, pushing the ball back uh, uh, fair in his, in his, you know, with his arms. Um, very good. Are they dead or alive? Fisk is alive. Fisk is alive. I, um, I think Johnny Bench is alive too. They are both alive. Yeah. They are. Uh, a mere mere children of seventy five. Right. <laughs> so, what will you be ranting about today? Some sad news: uh, the New York Times um, has ceased its sports page. Um, kind of a dark week for sports journalism. They've kind of outsourced their sports coverage to non unionized labor force. And the Athletic, which I really like, but it's still very troubling for now in the future of of sports journalism. I will be doing a. Um just like I did last week, a revisit to a rant uh, about Bob Huggins, who uh, pulled a uh, George Costanza. Well, how about you? I'll be ranting about Shohei Otani in the trade deadline and seeing where you guys think he lands. And tell us a little bit about our main topic, Andrew. Well, this season, we're talking about dynasties, right? And every great dynasty has their cornerstones, and, there's co- and those cornerstones start generally at a young age. So this week, in deference to that, and to Victor Wabanyama, we're going to talk about, we're each going to discuss two people that we think are, or collectives, in I think Ed's case, one case, personas that we think are going to be cornerstones of whether they be sports dynasties, political dynasties, or media dynasties. It's all next after the rants here on the Bill Bradley Collective. <laughs> Driving into the crossroads of sports and politics. 
We are the Bill Bradley Collective. Here are your hosts, Ed, Zach, and Andrew. So a couple of weeks ago, I ran it about West Virginia University basketball coach Bob Huggins, who was arrested for driving with about 250% of the legal uh, alcohol uh, in his body. And the move uh, by people out through change.org to bring him back and his daughter's letter. And it seems like one person has become convinced that he should be still, still in the job. And that person is Bob Huggins. Because Bob Huggins is saying, hey, I never resigned. Now, this is, first of all, a Seinfeld episode, uh, but Bob Huggins is less likable than George, which is saying something. Um, But Huggins had in his contract that he could be fired by the university if he was charged with a crime. They had that provision in there, probably because Huggins has had drunk driving arrests before. Um, and I mean, as his daughter says, he likes to collect cans and bottles and he also likes to empty them. So he is now saying, no, I never resigned. His attorney said, um, that he has to, uh, according to his contract, he has to resign under a certified, if he had, through a certified letter. Um, there is a letter that was sent from a cell phone, from his wife's cell phone saying um, that he wanted to, quote, announce that he would no longer be coaching the team. West Virginia is saying he clearly communicated his resignation. He actually met with the team to tell them that he had resigned. But none of that ever happened, supposedly. So Bob Huggins is, the university says they're confused. Bob Huggins claims he's still the coach of the team. This is obviously going to court. And his lawyer said, that he is not interested in leg- uh, in litigation. But, of course, that's why he's doing this, because he thinks he can extort a buyout from the university. Stay classy, Bob. At the time of the of the DUI arrest and the, uh, the homophobic and also sort of like anti-Catholic remarks regarding like playing at uh, Xavier in Cincinnati, um, I, I said at the time that one of the s- scary potential <laughs> truths was that it's kind of a way for like West Virginia could like not give a shit about what he did, but also be like they kind of want maybe want it out because they haven't been very good for like five years. Huggins makes a lot of money and he's not getting any younger. Now, he is sixty nine years old. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> you know, coach that a guy's a third of his age. Um, look, this is a guy who for the past thirty five years and and more. I mean, you could since the old years at Cincinnati, uh, Kansas State, brief stopover, past fifteen or so years at West Virginia. Every year, this guy's making a comfortable seven-figure salary, and then some on top of whatever he gets for radio appearances and promotional stuff, whatever. Every training can to bottles, <laughs> good money there. Sure. This is point being, this is an absurdly like wealthy old man. Um, wh- wh- why? What is the? Why do you want to keep doing this? Why do you want to further your legacy's already tarnished? At least, certainly, certainly off the court and on the court, it wasn't getting any better. What is the point? What is the fight? What are you fighting for exactly? You have all the money in the world. The thing that I, get, I don't get it. The thing that gets me about this is that you know so often we are college basketball coaches talked about as being these like molders of young men, 
Like, you know who this isn't good for? Any of the basketball players at West Virginia. This isn't going to help them develop for next season. This isn't going to, like, guide them or mentor them in life. Like, this is just a selfish alcoholic trying to get an extra $10 million. Exactly. Sure. Quick segue, too. I mean, I would love, you know, a couple of years from now to watch UConn kick the living tar out of Bob Huggins in West Virginia, but we'll just, we'll just have to settle for West Virginia and whoever the coach is at the time. Anyway, uh, this week, the New York Times um, decided to shutter, decided to do, uh, do away with their sports section, which, and again, we talked about this a bit last week about just the, the evolution of media from print, from print journalism to digitalization. Um, the Times is kind of the latest uh, to make that sort of move. Um, look, the, the history, it, it's a bad day. It's a bad week. It's a bad time for like sports journalism. Dave Anderson, George Vesey, Selena Roberts, Harvey Ayrton. This is some of like the titans um, that came through the Times over the last like half century. Um, Bill Rhodes. Oh, Bill Roden, of course. Um, <laughs> Gerald Eskenazi wrote a book. He was a Jets beat writer from the 60s to the 90s. He wrote a, wrote a history of the Jets that I got from the Waterford Public Library in the late 90s when I was in grade school. And it was like one of the big impetuses for me to become a Jets fan. It was like reading those just the sorry history of, of the Jets penned by Eskenazi, the then, then New York Times beat writer for the Jets. Um, the kind of even darker underbelly of, of the move is that the Times purchased The Athletic for a half a billion dollars uh, some months ago. And what they basically said publicly is that they're trying to transition sports coverage away from, obviously, obviously away from The Times, but to The Athletic, this uh, enterprise that they own, that they have a you know full commercial interest in. The Times over the last year or so has been very, very public bouts of you know management just trying to bust up Times Union. Sports writers at the Times were union writers, union members. You know what the athletic staff are not? They are not union. So now you have the Times transitioning its sports coverage to non-unionized labor. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Zach and Ed are pretty involved in the union scene. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, and I'd like to get their thoughts uh, from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is what we're going to see more of as hedge funds and Wall Street have a bigger and bigger role in the media landscape. I mean, the non-union writers at The Athletic are just cheaper than the union writers at The New York Times. Like, there's no debate on which labor is cheaper, like union or non-union. The difference is quality and, like, the checks and balances that goes into that quality. The Athletic, I read, it's fine. It's, it's great. The, we should support it. Yeah, but it's not it's, the New York yeah. Times. You know, where actual journalists are. No, and, and the, my understanding of the athletics pay structure is it's a stars and scrubs thing. It, just like ESPN's become. You know, that you can't work your way up and uh, develop as a athletic writer realistically because... They're not going to keep you. If, you. if you become expensive, they just let you go, get somebody else in there. Um, no, and of course, you know, now instead of spending your whatever, you know, $5 a month to get the uh, times and then uh, and read the sports, you now have to pay for the athletic also, which is not expensive, but it's not nothing. They run sales like a dollar a month. Yeah, it's just, it's disgraceful. And as you said, it, it is, you know, 
we're seeing all throughout the media landscape. I'm sure at some point we'll be talking about the SAG strike, um, maybe next week. Yeah. Um, because it's it's all uh, the media has just become ground zero for mistreating workers. To round out our rants, uh, this is a rarity. I I think this is maybe like my third sports rant I've done in the entirety of this podcast. I typically talk about politics, which I'll get back to in the main topic. But for the rant, I want to talk about uh, Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels uh, and the approaching trade deadline in baseball, which is August 1st. Shohei Otani just had the greatest first half in Major League Baseball history. He had 31 home runs, uh, 71 RBIs. He also went 7-4 and four with a 3.3 ERA and 130 strikeouts. His war is ridiculous. I mean, not on the pitching side because for some reason you have to go like 22-0. and 0. But he is also, for the purpose of this, in his last year of his contract. So the big question is going to be, are the Angels going to be sellers at the trade deadline? If they were competitive going into the wild card or divisional races, it was thought that they would try to keep him, re-sign him next year in the offseason. They're currently five games out of the wild card and seven games uh, out of the AL West. And it looks like Otani might be getting shipped. And the question that becomes, does he go to someplace on the coast like the Dodgers, a big market team, uh, that can afford him and could probably re-sign him? Does he go somewhere to the Mets where he knows he's going to get, you know, $500 million in a contract? Uh, I mean, he is a once-in-a-generation baseball player. What do you think happened? I mean, this is the next 10 days we're talking about. Well, if you want to kind of uh, do an eliminator thing here where, A, it's going to be a buyer. B, it's going to be a team that will, again, have the means to resign him after the end of the season. They're not going to give up an enormous haul and then let him walk in three months. That's that's just not going to happen. Um, look, I think Otani would prefer to stay on the West Coast. He said publicly that that's where he'd prefer to play. Um, you can't dismiss the Yankees and Mets. The Yankees and Mets fit both profiles. The Mets, I still think a couple weeks from now, they're going to be in a buyer position. I don't see Steve Cohen ever at any point being a, a seller, quote-unquote, Um the Yankees, similar. The Yankees are in a stronger position in, in, in the standings. They'll definitely be a player. I, you know, if I was going to handicap it, I think he's more likely... I would think a team like Seattle would be a player in free agency. But the Angels are not going to trade to a division rival in the season. That's not going to happen. I think it's going to be a West Coast team. And I'm thinking it's going to be like Dodgers, Giants, Padres. Um, although Mets, Yankees, I think, are, are definitely contenders. Yeah, I, I was... I was thinking Giants, um, who have shown in the past a willingness to spend money. Um, he wouldn't even have to sell his house. He could just live there. Just, I mean, it's not, not really changing anything. PCH. Um, you know, and, and because there's designated hitters in both leagues now, he could play anywhere. Um, so it would be, you know, I, I do think he'll be, I think he'll be traded. I think, I, think, I think he's going. The, yeah. the Angels aren't going to let him, because I don't think he's re-signing with the Angels. He said at the All-Star game, he wants to win, and he wants to win now. And the Angels, despite having two of the, you know, 25 greatest players ever, stink. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they stink. 
Otani's talents were on full display in Seattle at the All-Star Game this past week. And once upon a time, five, six years ago, before Otani came to the States, he was an up-and-coming global baseball star. Uh, he was an up-and-comer in Japan. He just hit it big. And now he's obviously one of the biggest sports celebrities that we have in this country. Couple that with the kind of debut, the American debut of Victor Wabanyama in the NBA Vegas Summer League this past week. We decide in, in tribute to Otani years ago and Wabanyama this summer, let's all uh, kind of take a couple of up-and-comers, whether it be sports, politics, media. We're going to look at six individuals up next on the Bill Bradley Collective. Do you enjoy Pokemon Go but wish you could also keep up with the times? Try Politic Go, the game where you can find and catch rich people and evolve them into senators and congresspeople. Paul Ryan, I choose you. Use white privilege. It's super effective. You can even catch actually decent human beings and try to change the world. My Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is evolving into a Bernie Sanders. You can even battle against your friends' politicians. Einstein, use loaded question. <laughs> Betsy DeVos uses dumb. Vouchers. It's super effective. Jeff Sessions, use memory loss. I do not recall. Politic go, because the world is a fucking joke. So welcome back. We are doing this as though it were a draft, but we're not, there's no stakes, so we're not going to do anything with it. Um, so it's, you know, I, I guess it's like the hockey draft. So... These are people or groups that we feel are about to do something spectacular. Zach, kick us off. To start us off, I am going to go uh, with a Democratic congressman from Florida, Maxwell Alejandro Frost. You hit it. You know, is that the one you're going <laughs> to? I knew it. That's why I went with him first. He is the first Gen Z to have a seat in Congress. He is only uh, was born in 97, so he is 26, 27 years old. No, 26 or 25, depending on when he's born. Uh, he's part of the squad with uh, AOC and Ayanna Presley and Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. But there is some controversy with that being uh, aligned with Omar and Tlaib and the rest of the squad, which is he is very pro-Israel. Uh, he, as an activist, uh, supported BDS, which is the boycott divestment and something else to Israel sanction. and sanction of Israel as a congressman. He has reversed that position. He is says he's for a two state pollution, but has been against some of Palestinian uh, sovereignty, but he is also very liberal. Like most Gen Z uh, is he supports the green new deal, big advocate for gun control on single payer health care, you know, in a typical Gen Z fashion or 25-year-old fashion, he wants a life without, pr a world without prisons. I don't know what that looks like. You got to, bad guy's got to go somewhere. You can't just put him in a hole. That's what Australia's for. Yeah, you got to, you know, we got to do something. But he, I think, uh, if he can keep winning in Florida, getting started this young, like, he could be somebody who's a future challenger, Marco Rubio, a uh, future gubernatorial contender but at 25 26 being in congress he's he's got a big future he um he has to see because the person that held it before ran against marco rubio for the senate val deming it's val deming seat it's a very it is a liberal seat a democratic seat but he beat two former congressmen plus a current state senator they're uh very impressive um uh, and he came in well 
he was preceded by someone also his age, uh, uh, who was not as good, Cawthorn. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Madison Cawthorn. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, no, he, he's uh, he's great. New blood is good, especially in that state, especially on you know on the blue side. I'm not a get off my lawn kind of a guy. Let, let the youth, the Gen Zers, let's go. Let's let's get them in there and. They're going to carry our 84-year-old president over the line in 2024. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to. Somebody's going to have to. I uh, am going to talk about the very rare athlete, the American heavyweight, Jared Anderson. 24 years old. He's 15-0. and 0. He has 14 knockouts. He had his hardest fight against Charles Martin recently, uh, just a couple weeks, a few, couple months, like a month ago now. Um he fought. I thought it was. I thought it was his best performance because Martin's a real a real fighter when he comes in in shape, which is not always. But he was in shape for this fight, and um, it was a tough fight. Uh, he got tagged, but he he kept going. Um, you know the the fighters that were that are kind of on the top right now are all in their mid to late thirties. Uh, Tyson Fury is thirty five. He's retired twice already. Wilder's 38, uh, Anthony uh, Joshua's 34, and he, has, he just doesn't win anymore, hasn't won in a while. So there's space for him to move. What's interesting about Anderson for me is he's six foot four, 240, which means he's George Foreman's size when Foreman was heavyweight champion. Even, actually, when Foreman came back, he was 6'4", 240. I'm not sure he's big enough anymore. These guys are all 6'8", 6'9", 275, 280. If you've never seen him, he, he's a really engaging personality, an engaging fighter. He doesn't just stand around uh, looking to land a right hand like most heavyweights. He moves. He's responsible defensively. And uh, he showed in the Martin punch, uh, fight, he could really take a punch. He got tagged and uh, and stayed up and got through the round. It was the first round he's ever lost as a fighter. Actually, two of the judges called it even, which was insane. He lost a round by a lot. Um, but... Uh, I think he's got – I'm looking forward to seeing the next 15 years of uh, Jared Anderson. Nothing moves the boxing needle in the mainstream um, like a great heavyweight, namely, I mean, a great American heavyweight. Um, look, a lot of the great young American fighters right now all kind of reside between 130 and 160 pounds. Um, Deontay Wilder's a big star, big star. Andre Ward was a star and, and, and such. But let's see, you know, his whole he's 24 years old. He's got that that O. He's you know he, that was a real crossroads fight in his last fight um, that he passed. He passed a, a stern test. His whole future's in front of him. I'm rooting for him to do big things. It's, it'd be obviously great for him and, and great for the boxing profile in the mainstream to have a great young American heavyweight. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we thought Wilder might have been the next great American heavyweight, but then I mean, I was at the I was at a bar watching uh, Fury and Wilder, and there it was packed. Like there was real energy for him, but now it's. He lost. It's kind of the hype's gone. He's not generational. He's very yeah. good. Very so good. Just not that generation. Any, anything that's going to be like you know, coverage on ESPN and get people talking around the world about an American heavyweight. You know, that's that's just good for the sport. It's good for it's good for the ratings. We need more rating, better ratings in boxing. You know, it's just all like can't beat it. Yep. So for me, uh, the next guy up, the guy to keep an eye on in golf, um, who I think. This being a Ryder Cup year, he's a European. Just finished his collegiate career at Texas Tech, where he was a two-time Ben Hogan Award winner, 
Outstanding Collegiate Golfer of the Year. He got his tour card on a new qualification where the Outstanding Collegiate Player of the Season is automatically gets a card, and that is one Sweden's Ludwig Aberg. Ludwig Aberg. 23 years old, got to see a little bit of him in Hartford at Cromwell, the Travelers' Championship. Followed him for a couple of holes where he was playing with kind of his American contemporary. Uh, Sam Bennett, who just turned professional as well, kind of raised some eyes. The Masters, the U.S. Open. One guy to me has it, and that's Aberg. One guy doesn't have it, and that's Bennett. Aberg's got the, he's the complete package. Um, 6'4", hits it a mile, plays fast, hits his irons a mile, can putt. Uh, he's played a handful of tour events since he's turned pro. He's made the cut in all of them. Contended last week at the John Deere. Um, I mentioned it's a Ryder Cup year. I've watched old man Rory McIlroy, old man Rory, who's you know mine and Zach's age, uh, kind of take along with him in the pairs plays at Ryder Cups, some similar like long-hitting neophytes, Thorby Arn Olsen, Thomas Peters, and past Ryder Cups. Um, I would love to see Rory kind of take this guy under his wing for some four-ball, four-some matches uh, in Italy this fall, and I'd like to see him put a hurtin' on some spoiled American player in the singles. Uh, Ludwig Aberg, guy to watch. I think he's a future major champion, multi-time major champion. I think sky's the limit on this kid. Yeah, there are a myriad. It's a good time to be a fan of young golf golfers, and right now, like you could have talked about any number of guys, you know, that we see: Sahith, Akshay, Sungjae, Im, you know, Tom Kim, you know, any. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you were talking about Oberg. I think a couple of weeks ago, saying that he's the guy to watch out for. I think I mentioned him when we played last week. Yeah, right? that he's the guy to watch out for, and. You know, we'll see. I mean, these guys, they if they rise quick, uh, you know, they, they start making money quick. They're going to be at a, a lot of tournaments. And, you know, hopefully we'll see them there because it's – when there's young, exciting guys, golf is a better sport. Absolutely. For sure. So I'm going to go back to Rising Stars, but I'm actually going to go to the Republican Party, a uh, somebody that I think is an up-and-comer in the Republican Party, which is – Joe Lombardo, the governor of uh, Nevada, he was a sheriff in Nevada for like 30 years. He's a cop. But he beat Steve Sisolak in a primary. And the reason why I say that he could be an up-and-coming in the Republican Party or somebody to watch out for is he is fairly liberal. He has signed a bill protecting out-of-state providers that provide abortion care. He has uh, said he supports universal background checks on guns, which for a Republican is a pretty wild position for these day and age. He uh, also said he supports a high magazine ban, which is something we have in Connecticut that we banned 30 bullets per magazine. He signed legislation that prevents uh, insurance companies from discriminating against trans people on the basis of their identity. And on voting rights, he said that the election wasn't stolen and that Joe Biden was the president. He's not the most labor-friendly, which in Nevada could make him a one-term governor, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens after 2024 because if DeSantis and Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence all get beat by Trump and then Trump loses again to Biden, are we going to see a swing back on the Republican side to maybe more Susan Collins- Mitt Romney, John McCain style Republicans, because he's the governor of Nevada, and that's a state that Republicans have to win if they want to be if they want to win the presidency. Like there are states that they win that if they win, it blocks Democrats. And Nevada is a state that 
they can't Republicans won't be president if they don't win Nevada. Yeah, it's he is an interesting character. But the question really is a test of the Republican Party. Because, you know, you could have said all of these things about Larry Hogan, or maybe said many of these things about Larry Hogan. Yeah. Deval Patrick. Right. Or Deval Patrick. And these people can't get any toehold in national politics. No. And it'll be interesting to see if Fox News begins promoting him. Because that's really everything. If he's, if he's doing, you know, a, an interview on Fox News four, you know, five times a month, then he, he can have a national profile. And if he doesn't, he can. But uh, he, he's like, you know, I mean, I disagree with him about a lot of stuff, but he seems like a relatively sane human being, which makes him a real outlier. Yeah, and we need the Republican. Like, we have the two-party system. There is something to say that it's a benefit to, to democracy when those two parties are both operating in the same world. Right. My up-and-comers, and there's four of them here, Nicole Marcus, Alice Brown, Cole Reynolds, and Divya Bardwat, who write for the Northwestern University newspaper, The Daily Northwestern. And over the past week to 10 days, they have submitted some of the most outstanding journalism you'll find anywhere. Bringing down uh, Pat Fitzgerald, a man who went 1-11, and 3-9, and 3-9, and, and no one thought anything about, well, well, I wonder if he'll lose his job. He was legendary in that university, but presided over one of the most toxic climates Ever and I, I, if you haven't read these stories about what was called hazing and team building, but was actual just sexual abuse of players, uh, pe- and players men, and mental abuse. It was mental it, abuse. It, pretty- players were, were were thinking about committing suicide. No one picked up this story. It had been going on for sixteen years, and yet these four these four kids broke the story. Very well-sourced, and finally a report came out, which was not released to the press, and Fitzpatrick, uh, Fitz, Fitzgerald was uh, suspended two weeks without pay. So 4% of his salary uh, he was going to lose for this situation, and they got a hold of that report and published it, and then they had no choice but to fire him. Uh, Northwestern University has not covered themselves in glory in this. For example, they fired none of the assistant coaches. So all the assistant coaches are still there. The baseball team had another abuse scandal with their baseball coach. So, And that also got broken by the Daily Northwestern. They're doing incredible reporting. And I think these four kids, uh, we're going to, you know, there's always been a lot of reporters coming out of Northwestern. It's you know, AJ Adage. J.J. Adage, right. No, it's okay. I haven't gotten the name right in four years. And so these people, I think, you know, we will be reading about the fact that they had excellent jobs and were laid off in 15 years. Northwestern's academic profile, academic footprint, is definitely bigger than its sports one. But that's not to say, like, Northwestern still, it's a Big Ten school that makes, that generates Big Ten revenue that... You know, Northwestern played in the Rose Bowl in the nineties. They, 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 they played in bowl games under under Fitzgerald. They got fifty nine million dollars uh, from the Big Ten for football. It's very likely that Fitzgerald was the highest paid uh, employee of Northwestern University. 
Oh, absolutely. They owed them. They owed them forty million dollars for these kids, for these uh, student journalists to go after this program, to go after uh, again one of the most, if not the most influential person at the university, a Paterno-esque figure in Northwestern football. Like he had been part of the program for thirty-seven years. For sure, he was. He was named head coach after he was defense coordinator, and the head coach who got named passed away. Like before he could take the job, he got the job, and he's kind of revered there for these. Again, these student journalists to go after this guy, go after a guy, his magnitude, his profile. Um, it's really it takes balls, and, and, to ha- and to have the story and to deliver the story, uh, hats off. I mean, and, and, to ha- and to 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 get the story from the players who, yeah. you know, didn't were ashamed. It, it was yeah. Yeah, I think people forget when they watch, you know, them getting blown out in the football week in week out. They're like Northwestern's a legitimately good school, great school. Like yeah. it's a very good school. It's hard to get into. Yeah, it's it's probably the best school in the Midwest. Yeah, when the only person that's like defending you is Darren Ravel, that's when you know like <laughs> the tides have risen and it's time to go. <laughs> uh, so the last pick, my last pick, um, sports media, sports journalist uh, Benjamin Solak of the Ringer does great, great work on the NFL. Twenty six years old, twenty six or twenty seven. He's born in ninety seven, uh, much like Zach's first pick. Um, this guy for me just and there's so much bad bad sports media content out there. There's so much bad NFL content out there. What Solak does, and again, at his young age, that he threads this needle of like quant statistical analysis, game, like game tape footage breakdown with a, he does a gambling slant that's not like in your face and not like about just like smash the under, smash the over, love them with the points, like like really looking at kind of like nuanced things. Um, he's He's kind of a kind of an outlier personality-wise. I listen to his podcasts and I read him religiously and I follow him on social media. So I know he's like very religious, doesn't really swear, doesn't drink, um, goes to church, which is, hey, hats off, do your thing. Um, just kind of doesn't glorify certain behaviors that I think we all kind of partake in, which is just different, but welcome. I mean, uh, 26 years old, 27 years old, star podcaster. I think he's a rising star at The Ringer. Ten years from now, I could see this guy on a on a pregame show on a network, uh, doing his, doing his brand of again very unique. Just he's, he's got the X's and O's, he's got the numbers, and again everything's kind of going gambling in terms of not only sports coverage but namely NFL coverage. He's got that island covered too. He's great. His draft stuff is great. Uh, I love the guy, and he's an up and comer at his the ripe age of twenty six. Yeah, he looks like he's eleven, so he's not going to be on for a while. But he. Um, <laughs> I also, get carded for the next I, I also, I mean, his range is incredible. I mean, it's all football. But the fact that he can do these kind of really thoughtful breakdowns of big issues with Steven Ruiz, um, which is on the ringer every Friday. They just take a big issue and break it down. Um, and, and it's kind of almost formal. And then he's also on the fantasy show, yucking it up with the guys and telling slightly, making slightly off-color comments and laughing and, He's he's amazing. He's yeah, that's a great call. So that was our breakdown of up and coming people that uh, we expect to see over the next fifteen years, and uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And we will talk to you next week on the Bill Bradley Collective. As always, we thank you for joining us here. And if you liked today's episode, smash that subscribe button. Leave us a review. Let's help grow the collective brand. We'll see you all next week on the Bill Bradley Collective.